Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As Russia evacuates its citizens from Kherson in anticipation of a major Ukrainian offensive to retake the key southern city, Moscow is using Iranian long-range drones to degrade Ukraine's power and water grids. U.S. officials have said that Iranian technicians uh, are in occupied Crimea to help the Russians operate these long, medium, and short-range weapons donated by Tehran. This as British officials revealed that a Russian Sukhoi 27 fighter fired a missile near an unarmed Royal Air Force RC-135 rivet joint reconnaissance aircraft operating in international airspace over the Black Sea late last month. Russia claimed the launch was because of a technical malfunction, although British officials see the move as the latest effort by Moscow to intimidate Western powers. To that end, it appears Russia is disrupting underwater cables. Connectivity between the British mainland and the Shetland Islands were cut last week, uh, and French and Spanish ships recently escorted a surfaced Russian conventionally powered kilo-class submarine accompanied by a Russian tugboat uh, through the Bay of Biscay. Germany is investigating rail network delays suspected to have been caused by Russian sabotage. This as uh, Germany's cybersecurity chief uh, is fired for uh, his close uh, links to somebody with whom he started a company a decade ago who happens to be a part of Russian intelligence. And a 60 pence head of Tesco lettuce did outlive Liz Truss uh, as Britain's prime minister, who announced her resignation uh, yesterday after her fiscal policy of sharply cutting taxes while also sharply increasing uh, government spending immediately and gravely damaged market confidence in Britain's economic outlook, uh, now forcing increases in taxes and sharp cuts to government spending, which Jeremy Hunt, uh, the new chancellor of the Exchequer, is to unveil next week. Coronation of Xi Jinping continues as Chinese as the Chinese leader uh, ratchets up uh, rhetoric against Taiwan, as well as the United States and other powers, or I should say Chinese leaders do. Uh, North Korea is expected to conduct its seventh nuclear test soon, uh, and demonstrations in Iran are spreading as uh, the Basij or uh, the uh, Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, brutally, excuse me, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps brutally cracks down on protesters. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome. Uh, great to have you on the program. Jim, particularly, thanks for joining us from Riga. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our conversation uh, yesterday with Dr. Uh, Phil Carber uh, of uh, the Potomac uh, Foundation Think Tank, very thoughtful uh, on strategy. Uh, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran, and check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who discusses, uh, takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, welcome all. Uh, Jim, uh, you know, welcome back, and thanks especially for joining us from Riga, seven hours uh, ahead, ahead of where we are. Uh, there, there was 
a little bit of euphoria growing that Ukraine was going to make short work of this war. Uh, you know, Russia uh, then began imposing martial law on Kherson and other occupied areas to make it easier to crack down on the local population, while also using now uh, to great effect Iranian drones to inflict the kind of damage that to date has been, you know, has Ukraine has not really been subjected to for its electric power and water grids. So even though the Ukrainians are shooting a lot of these down, enough of them are getting through uh, to be damaging. Power is important, not just to heat homes, but the rail networks that keep the war going, as, as Phil yesterday discussed with us. Uh, America and its allies are shipping more air defense systems to Ukraine. Inflation is increasing because of the OPEC plus uh, decision, and it's destabilizing European governments. Liz Trust collapsed largely because of her own errors, and we can discuss that later. What's the sense, right? You're at a very important conference in Riga, the Riga conference, in fact, uh, where alliance uh, leaders are meeting. What's the sense about where we are and what's next? Well, it's very grim. Uh, and I, you know, I haven't been back to Europe in, in a while, certainly since the, the fighting started in Ukraine. And I was really struck by so many of the very senior and very well-respected experts, uh, uh, pretty sobered uh, by what's happening and, and, and not knowing what the future holds. So there's not a lot of exuberance or celebration here. There's just a lot of of trying to figure out how long this war is going to take and what to do if uh, Putin uh, is remains for the next five years and feeling also quite exposed that they don't have a military capability uh, to handle this by themselves. They're very thankful uh, for the U.S. to be coming in like this, but there is um, there are splits between the uh, the Baltic nations and Poland versus Germany and what Germany is providing or not providing. Uh, and, um, and there's concern about the U.S. midterms and what will this mean in terms of the Congress approving funding requests by the administration to keep up uh, the assistance to, uh, to Ukraine. That's just a little bit of what's on their minds. And the more we talk, uh, the, 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 the grimmer it looks because there just are not any answers and each day brings another surprise. And that nuclear um, potential is always in the background as well. So uh, there's, there's not a lot of... Um, of uh, exuberation about anything uh, here and concerning the battlefield right now. It's, it's all trying to figure out what the future holds. Uh, and, uh, you know, and one of the issues that when you talk to European leaders uh, or former leaders uh, at the AUSA show uh, last week was, you know, we, we saw all of these and we didn't invest. So we're short of ammunition. We're, we invested in systems, but our magazines are very empty. If it wasn't for the United States, we'd be in deep trouble. And the United States is depleting magazines, although we are now starting to accelerate production of a lot of systems, uh, which, which is good, right? I mean, once we get rolling, uh, it may take us time, as, as Dove has wisely observed. You know, we, we tend to sort of get it right. And, and then we kind of overreact in some respects. Dove, I want to bring you in. I mean, you know, speaking of the midterm elections, right? I mean, we have heard the minority leader of the House, Kevin McCarthy of California, a California Republican, make clear uh, that Ukraine would not get a blank check. Uh, obviously, very strong sentiments, uh, certainly on the Republican side, to dial back aid uh, to Ukraine. Why are we spending all this money, you know, a kind of a warmth to Russia, which uh, has evolved, uh, unfortunately, in the party over the last couple of years. Uh, and now it looks increasingly likely that Republicans want to take not just the House, but also take the Senate. Um, you know, what what does the, you know, I mean, now, you know, the, the uh, minority leader did dial back his comments a little bit, uh, but for some, it was unconvincing. From, from your perspective, what do these statements mean? And what do they mean in terms of messaging to European governments where we're going to go next? 
whether or not the Biden administration wants to be supportive to Ukraine till the end. It's not just Republic, the Republican right that uh, wants to cut defense, which is, ties in, of course, with support for Ukraine, because it's harder to support Ukraine if your own defense budget's uh, in trouble. Uh, but it, it's also the, the Democratic progressive left that uh, is not crazy about spending money on defense and is not crazy about spending money on Ukraine. And so this is a, a huge problem that uh, that we're going to face uh, because uh, the war is going to be long. And that's another problem, by the way, that the United States has to come up with or rather confront, which is we keep thinking that these wars are going to be short. Well, you know, after Iraq and Afghanistan and now Ukraine, our war is going to be short. People don't stop fighting just because uh, analysts think they will. And so we have a serious issue here um, that uh, I'm afraid uh, is going to be going to require some rather more rapid action on the part of the Biden team while they still have some support on the Hill. And I would argue that does mean uh, responding to the Russians uh, by giving the Ukrainians the ability, first of all, to hit back at Russia, which means the ATACMs in particular and maybe aircraft as well. Uh, and the excuses about training and all that we can accelerate the training. The Ukrainians are not stupid. We've seen that. Um, they could put these systems to use pretty quickly. It would also allow us to, to push the Europeans to do more if we're doing more. The other thing, of course, is um, not just uh, ATACMs and, and aircraft, but tanks. You get them the tanks, and you don't have to give them the most upgraded American tanks. Uh, you can give them earlier versions of the M1 and so on. Uh, and they could use those to accelerate their own penetration into the Donbass region. So, the, it, you know, given the prospects in Congress, it seems to me that for once the administration cannot simply wait until it gets it right. It's got to do something now. Well, again, I mean, this was the case being made many, many months ago, and we've discussed this since the beginning of the crisis, that given it takes time to train it may be good to make some of these decisions earlier rather than later, because even if you make it now, especially with an M1 tank, that is very, very different from what um, Ukrainians are used to using uh, and will make a market shift. And it's a very, very maintenance intensive um, uh, a weapon, uh, unfortunately, despite its uh, enormous capabilities. Let me let me go back well, uh, to just, Jim. Let me just add one thing to that observation, though. Um, if they get M1 tanks, which can function pretty well in cold weather, uh, that gives them a, an advantage they may not have right now once the Russian winter sets in. Exactly. I mean, what, what I'm saying is that the maintenance and logistical requirements for that work if you're the United States Army and have those tanks in large numbers. But I, but I take your point. Uh, Jim, let me bring you back into this because I know your time is short and you've got to get back to uh, events that are associated with uh, the conference. But two questions. One is, the financial outlook, um, you know, as we saw, you know, in in Britain, obviously that was a self-inflicted uh, gunshot wound. Uh, a head of lettuce uh, did uh, outlast uh, the British uh, Prime Minister, but that's in part because she announced something that that terrified financial markets: dramatic increase in spending with a sharp reduction in taxes. Fortunately, nobody else in Europe has done that, but the OPEC decision is rising uh, prices. And, and now the British government is saying that we're going to have to be coping with, you know, raising taxes and reducing spending. And at a time when the National Health Service is in trouble and everything else, there is a concern that that not only does defense not get to 3% of GDP for a nation that is a leader in European defense, 
but actually there may be cuts to British defense. Uh, we'll see what Jeremy Hunt does next week. But what's the sense that European governments are transmitting in terms of their ability to invest in defense uh, at a time when their citizens are hurting because of inflation, uh, you know, housing prices collapsing in a lot of places, right? So people bought high and the expect expectation it would keep going up. What's the sense on what the outlook is for defense spending at a time when Europe actually has to be investing in defense capability? Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, and a couple of things. One is, I think I've heard a lot of the, particularly the smaller European nations, some of the smaller Central East European nations telling me how much of their arsenals are empty now. Because one thing, I talked to US Mission NATO about this, the, most of the allies are not being very public about what they're providing U, uh, Ukraine. Um, they said that uh, there's, a, there's a sensibility there concerning, uh, I guess it's Russia or maybe it's politically at home or whatever, but they're keeping it quiet and they don't want NATO to put out facts and figures about what each nation is doing. But they were, I've talked to a number of them and they're saying we're absolutely out of this stuff. And so there's great concern that they replenish it as soon as possible because they're, they feel certain uh, that Russia is going to be back. Maybe not this year, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, but they're saying this long war for them is more than like a year or two. They're facing Russia for a long time and they're very anxious uh, to get uh, get the equipment back into their arsenals. You know, the U.S. has provided a big tranche of FMF and the EU has a funding uh, program as well to help them replenish. And so I've not heard that they're trying to, you know, ha having to cut budgets or trade off between fuel oil in the winter versus ammunition. They're, they're scared. They're, they are going after wherever they can uh, to replenish and they're running into supply problems, the supply chain. Um, right. You know, the Poles just bought from South Korea because they, that the, it was going to take too long to get deliveries from the United States. I think it was the howitzers. Um, and so uh, it's, it's, I'm hearing the complaint here that they need more, they're gonna spend more, particularly Poland. Uh, and they're not being able to get the deliveries uh, as soon as they really want them to, to get in. But I've also heard, if you talk to some of the Southern European allies, it's different. Uh, the war seems much further away. Uh, there's other crises they're dealing with. And so they're not as anxious as those frontline nations uh, to be getting uh, deliveries and making payments and, uh, and replenish the stocks that they've been giving, that they've been, uh, giving away to, to Ukraine. So, um, so you're not seeing what we've heard in the past when you talk to Europeans about defense spending and they give you a song and dance and well, sorry, this time around, we're not gonna be able to even come close to the 2%. They are working like hell to get there. Um, and they're doing it because frankly, uh, they're afraid of what's coming next. Um, well, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, even uh, even if uh, Vladimir Putin's nuclear talk is just talk, right? Because you know, as we've discussed on this program, there aren't there's like virtually there's like no scenario where it actually ends up working, right? It it doesn't seem to be intimidating Europeans anymore. It's certainly not going to have the desired effect, distribution of forces, and 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 what have you. Uh, but it is a terror weapon, obviously, that he could still pull. I think his calculus right. is I get more help from the Iranians and North Koreans uh, and the Chinese eventually. And Europe, uh, you know, the economic situation gets so bad in a couple of months. Right. They're they're coming out of their recession, even though their economic future is cloudy and, and then count, counting on that, helping them. Jim, I know you're very tight on time, but I want to bring Dove uh, into this uh, a second. And Patrick, thanks for being uh, patient, because uh, I'm going to bring you into this conversation in a moment as well, uh, because, it, you know, obviously the, the China is looking very closely at this. Uh, you know, uh, Dove, you're you're very close and have a lot of uh, friends in the British government. Um, you know, 
talk to us about sort of the the spending outlook and and what this economic downturn for Europe will mean. You know, and 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 now Europeans have a lot of appetite to spend for defense. I think that they recognize there's a threat on their border. On the other hand, we'll see where we are in a couple of months. I mean, sort of what's your sense on what the spending outlook for Europe is? And indeed, the spending outlook in the United States, right? I mean, our debt is also very high. And when there's a political party change, you know, Republicans are going to make an issue of this, as we've been discussing consistently uh, for some time now. Well, McCarthy has been signaling that we're going to cut our budget or at least the, the line he's used is don't expect defense spending to increase indefinitely. Uh, if that happens, that's going to affect the Europeans as well, because uh, as I mentioned, uh, there are those in Europe who don't want to spend more even now. Uh, and as Jim pointed out, it depends which part of Europe you're talking about. Uh, clearly, Poland, the Baltic states, maybe the Black Sea states, they're going to want to spend money. Um, that's not uh, across the board in NATO. Um, the, the British system, the British issue is, is kind of complicated because in a way, the only thing that Britain has right now that gives it clout in Europe is its defense capability. It's out of the European Union. Its economy is going to take a while to recover. Uh, what it does have is military clout, which the Europeans care an awful lot about. So I don't think they're going to cut the budget, even if uh, somebody like uh, uh, Sunak, uh, who was the chancellor, uh, comes in as, as prime minister, because if you recall, when he was chancellor under Boris Johnson, he did spend more money on defense. So I don't think that will be a problem uh, per se. Uh, the British economy is going to take a while to recover. Uh, some people say it'll never fully recover simply because of what's happened with Brexit. I don't know. Economists can never agree among themselves and usually get it wrong anyway. Uh, one other point relative to what you said earlier about maintenance, I think it's time that we started sending people, maybe contractors, into Ukraine if we're going to send them tanks to keep those tanks going. And all eyes are on you know, where this goes, because ultimately, right, no bucks, uh, no, no buck Rogers. Um, and, and indeed, putting contractors on the ground would be one of a, a myriad of things that we could and should be doing, as well as increasing pressure uh, on the Russians, right? I mean, I still find it extraordinary that they're doing the amount of trade that they're doing unimpeded uh, and does actually illustrate the challenges the United States, right? I mean, from a Chinese perspective, and I'm going to bring Patrick in on this in a minute, the Chinese attitude is, I mean, you haven't been able to bring Russia to its knees. You're, you're not bringing us to our knees. So we're, we feel pretty confident that we would not be that badly impacted uh, over the long term, that they could survive it better. Uh, Jim, let me just lead to this question. The, the West has worked hard both to help Ukraine, but also limit its ability to strike Russia proper, even as Russia and Belarus are striking Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian territory on a daily basis. Russia has mounted cyber operations against the West. It's blown up pipelines in international and territorial waters. It's severed undersea cables. Uh, it purposefully drives submarines in places that submarines don't go on the surface. Uh, to get people's attention. It's it shot near an RAF reconnaissance aircraft, right? Not just any aircraft, but a rivet joint. It, it um, you know, it disrupted, uh, as I mentioned, rail travel. Uh, thoughtful minds argue that the key to success in this is making sure that there's support for Ukraine at all costs to so sort of take it on the chin. On the other hand, the Russians are crossing lines that if you don't address, only embolden them to do other stupid stuff, right? We ended up in this position because we didn't do what we should have done in 2014 and to provocations over the last uh, eight, eight years. How do we respond to this and what's the consensus there? And Dove, uh, want to get your sense as well 
And then Patrick, want to get your sense because the Chinese clearly are watching watching this, right? And if the Chi- and the Chinese are very astute at seeing what the Russians are getting away with or not, just like Moscow is. What what's your sense on the right way to respond to this, Jim? Well, the cons- the consensus here is absolutely what you're saying is they see all of this uh, gray zone activity too, uh, and they know that they're really vulnerable to that. There's a there's a recognition here. Uh, among the people I've been talking to, the experts, is that they've been caught out by uh, not having the capabilities that we were warning them about, uh, but not having the stocks of ammunition, not having strategic lift in some ways, and having enough uh, personnel and, and structure to handle critical infrastructure, guarding you know the undersea cables, guarding the, uh, the uh, oil drills, all guarding a lot of the places uh, that are sitting ducks uh, in terms of Russian gray zone activities, they see that and they're, and they're alarmed by that and they are feeling pretty sobered by that. I heard the French talking about that today up on the stage, um, how um, that, that they just, they don't have the kit and that they're gonna have to do a lot of work with European defense industry and also with the US uh, to try to as quickly as they can do a lot of the things that we have been warning them about for years in terms of capability. They get it. And uh, you're not hearing um, shying away from this. You're not hearing them try to rationalize it away or come up with some Europe whole free and at peace. We've got to leave the door open and off ramps. You're not hearing that. (laughs) Uh, And so they are just trying to figure out how can we, how can we as quickly as we can repair this given who we are. Individual, uh, individual European nations, a European Union that doesn't necessarily have the facility to handle something quickly like this. Uh, what can they do? And, uh, and what happens if the Republicans come back in Washington and all of a sudden that uh, assistance goes away and Trump comes in to the White House? What will they do? Because they realize that they will not be able, and this is all of them. I have not heard another word uh, contrary to this, that they will not be able to handle Russia without the United States. And they know that that's just not in the near term and medium term, but in the long term, too, because like we're saying, there's a recognition that this isn't going to go away anytime soon. Of your your sense on how we deal with this? Well, I, I again, I, it just seems to me that uh, the only thing that we can do if we anticipate a Republican takeover uh, beginning on January 3rd uh, is that we need to think about how much we can get over to Ukraine between now and January 3rd. And uh, probably beyond that, because it'll take Congress a while to actually try to stop anything. So we probably got uh, somewhere up to a year to uh, figure out how to help Ukraine and the rest of Europe in the long term. But that requires planning now. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about like the national security strategy, which I wrote about today, which is all basically blue sky. I'm talking about solid planning with our European allies, knowing and our Ukrainian friends, what do they need? When do they need it? Which is probably now. How do we get it to them? What do we do with our industrial base? What do we use our contractors for? We've got to think this through systematically and not delay and delay and delay. Yes, absolutely. What Dove is saying, absolutely right. And, you know, your Europeans want to do that, too. They want to do that. They realize that the European defense industry is not up to the scale that's going to be needed. They right. know that getting the Ukraine defense industry is going to be a long-term prospect. You know, they've, they've had a defense industry in Ukraine, as we know, 
Um, and it's going to take a lot of work to get them able to produce the tanks, to produce what they need on their own instead of getting it from the West. So there is, uh, there's, in terms of planning, in terms of getting together to sort this out quickly, we've got a lot of uh, allies over here who want to start that. Uh, Jim, uh, thanks so uh, very much. Uh, really appreciate you joining us. Have a great weekend, great week, uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Patrick, you've been extraordinarily patient, so thanks very, very much for uh, bearing with us as we go through the Europe part of the conversation and now focus on the Asia uh, part uh, of the conversation, which is uh, very sweeping, but it is cross-connected, right? It's uh, Hanwha's K-9 uh, artillery piece that the pol uh, Poles uh, picked. It's a tremendous uh, artillery piece and an incredible capability uh, from a, a country that has a reputation for being able to develop, right? It is a nation that is on a war footing in terms of its industrial capacity uh, and, and has an enormous amount of capability that's unique. But I want to go to the question of, of how carefully China is watching what Russia can and can't get away with in terms of gray zone activity, in terms of how it is succeeding, in terms of how Russia is using, you know, the alliance with Iran, for example, to get capability uh, and get it to the field and also limitations of Western uh, countries. How do we need to respond to ensure that Beijing itself doesn't miscalculate? And how are the Chinese watching what's happening? I know this is a question I ask almost every week, but almost every week the situation is changing. Well, it's an important question to keep revisiting, uh, Vago. I, I think as Dove and Jim talked about the potential for protracted war, well, you know, Mao put forward the whole idea of protracted war, and Xi Jinping is a student of Mao and his protracted war. So it is important week to week in terms of opportunities of what shifts, but it's also important how this uh, progresses over time or devolves over time. Uh, I think China thinks that it's still very confident and can, within the party leadership, and that it can break Western resolve. It can, over time, find the cracks and the seams of uh, Western allies and crack them. So they're probably watching this Russia-Ukraine war, among, for many other things, whether indeed we can continue to be so united uh, behind Ukraine, even as Russia turns up the heat and, and creates even greater uh, sort of effects on the battlefield and, and more horror. Um, and they want to see what, what our tolerance is for pain and tolerance for risk. So they're, they're measuring all of those things. That doesn't tell us what they'll do tactically or operationally any week, but it does uh, inform their strategy going forward. Now, th th this has been the week of the 20th Party Congress, obviously, in Beijing. Um, and it started off with Xi Jinping giving a rather uh, gloomy assessment from our perspective of warning about black swan and gray rhino events. And you're thinking, well, what could those be? You know, is he talking about Taiwan? when he's referring to the high winds, choppy waters, and even dangerous storms that the Chinese people have to be prepared for? Um, very possibly. The PLA is, is clearly on track to be a true peer competitor, or at least Xi Jinping says it must be. Um, so not only must it be fully modern by 2035, it must be world-class, meaning really have primacy, I think, by 2049. Um, and so the concern, uh, one of the concerns right now in the party Congress is Xi Jinping picked some new uh, vice chairs for the Central Military Commission, which is kind of their head military strategic body. They're going to be losing some uh, of their limited combat experienced generals if they don't change the rules about who can who can still sit on it, because four of them are due for retirement. <clears throat> so it'll be very interesting to see what Xi Jinping does there. 
but there's a lot of discussion within uh, watchers of the PLA about the, the two inabilities of the PLA, right? They have no modern combat experience. This goes back to 1979, their last war with Vietnam. Uh, and secondly, um, the PLA officers really have no command experience. And they're, and they're real doubts about the kind of officer quality that exists inside the PLA. Now, this may be us looking from the outside in and, and questioning them because we have so much combat experience and combined arms, and all they have right now are exercises, which are increasingly sophisticated and impressive uh, joint combat uh, sort of exercises and drills, but they don't have the actual combat experience, which we think is a good thing. Question is, does Xi Jinping want to change that? Does he want to jump from, again, gray zone activity to much more kinetic? Uh, and that's where the warnings this week out of Washington uh, are uh, are sobering. Uh, you had first Secretary of State um, Tony Blinken saying that he's looking at Xi Jinping as having accelerated the timeline for unification with Taiwan. And then you've got this, the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Gilday, saying that uh, don't think about the Admiral Davidson window of 2027. This is an invasion that could happen in 2022. There are only three months left or 2023. So um, that's a very short term. He's they're, they're clearly trying to turn up the urgency, which I think is a good thing within the Navy, within the industrial base, and try to affect policy, including on the Hill, where the Taiwan Policy Act is going to make important decisions about financing Taiwan military arms. But at the same time, we ought not to, uh, again, fall into the trap of, of thinking that uh, Xi Jinping has an easy way in to invade uh, Taiwan. In fact, uh, Taiwan's own intelligence chief said there's no way that the PLA could win right now. I mean, I wouldn't be that confident, but at the same time, uh, it is a warning. Uh, and Taiwan does have this powerful silicon shield of economic interdependence through semiconductors. And they're expanding their own unofficial friendships with many countries. And they're working on a, a very prickly defense posture. So Taiwan has things going its way, too. Just because Xi Jinping is impatient doesn't mean he wants to leap for the worst strategy. Um, well, I mean, as, as they would say, from your mouth to God's ears, uh, right? Um let me just uh, just go to the Taiwan uh, question a little bit, because the party conference is always an opportunity for Beijing to telegraph what it will do with Taiwan or what its Taiwan plans are. And I thought that it was interesting that a couple of weeks ago was the disclosure, but I, I, I can't remember if it was maybe a little bit earlier than that, that you know, China has gone from, you know, peaceful absorption, one nation, two systems, right? They saw that that didn't work in Hong Kong. And now increasingly, the call is for re-education of Taiwan and, and effectively the crushing of Taiwan. What is it that we heard about Taiwan and the messaging about Taiwan and how it's changing and actually becoming a lot more foreboding than it's ever really been? Because effectively, you're talking about re-educating a country of 20 plus million people, potentially. If, if I'm not misreading no, the you, articles no, you're right. that are covering, covering this, because my <laughs> Mandarin really is not as good as I'd like it to be. Well, um, Xi Jinping has made it very clear that the party will subjugate Taiwan one way or the other. Um, and that's what's most worrisome here. <clears throat> um, so you know, there's no the utter disregard for the wishes of the people of Taiwan uh, should be appalling to everybody in the region and the world. Um, and it's therefore not winning friends and influencing people abroad. But it's a very effective message to a nationalistic uh, party Congress and into China generally right now <clears throat> under Xi Jinping as he makes the Taiwan unification, the forceful unification if necessary, part of his uh, strategy for national rejuvenation. Um, and it's, it's, he's demonstrating political will. So again, he's, it's a game of, uh, of political will, and he wants to demonstrate that he has greater will than we have uh, and greater will than the people of Taiwan have. 
so far he's not winning that game. Um, but uh, and so the question is, does he become as frustrated as Putin uh, and and lash out because he's got a, a more and more capable military, or he thinks he's even more capable than it is? Um, not yet, but it could happen. And that's again where the CNO and Secretary of State and many people uh, on Congress uh, would would agree. Um, we have to have more urgency about uh, maintaining deterrence against a more capable peer competitor like China over Taiwan, uh, even if um, even if he you know is not going to reeducate Taiwan tomorrow um, because he can't. He he really cannot do this. This is not an option that he has that makes sense for him. He's <clears throat> he's looking at the great rejuvenation of the nation, and that means not just um, Taiwan. And if you read his you know fifty page party report. It's clear he's got many ambitions. This is a comprehensive strategy. So Taiwan is only one piece of it. If Taiwan starts to get too independent, if it starts to look like an embarrassment for, for Beijing, then all bets are off. But I, I think this is manageable because Taiwan is, remains um, something uh, less than an existential threat to China. But over time, it may become increasingly that existential threat to the party's legitimacy and to Xi Jinping in, in particular. And that's where it becomes more dangerous. So I I agree as, as we go on, this gets more dangerous, but I just don't see the urgency today for an attack. But but the Admiral, you know, Admiral Gilday is right. I mean, the military ought to be preparing for this now because this takes years to prepare and to be and to be uh, less ill prepared for, for a range of contingencies. Right. So I want urgency on our defense industrial and our defense spending. But I don't think on our policy perspective, you know, we ought to be looking for real warning and indications, not not just the rhetoric here. And so. Um, the rhetoric is part of a political uh, gambit in this struggle, this long struggle. It is a protracted struggle. Um, so we've got to be in this for the long run, not just not just today and this week. Uh, but uh, and, and and Dove, I, I want to bring you in uh, on. I uh, have a question for you in a moment. But I mean, Patrick, the 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 question, an important question in this is. I mean, first, uh, you know, Secretary of the Air Force uh, Frank Kendall. I've said this on the show many times was one of the only people I knew, you know, in the early days of the Obama administration who would ask, well, what if a war or the next war or great power war is actually not as short and sharp as we think it will be, but it is a protracted conflict, right? Do we have the capabilities? Folks have been ringing these alarm bells for a long time, including the three of us and the four of us on this podcast, but munitions shortfalls. Are we buying the right kinds of munitions in the quantities we need? We're constantly seeking perfection as opposed to good enough and having a full magazine, right? You, you'd much rather have, you know, 100 more harpoons or extended range harpoons or what have you, as opposed to end up with, you know, a boutique level of a weapon that's three times better, right? Um, boutique quantities. You know, we keep squandering our resources. LCS was an extremely costly uh, program that was never abundantly clear the Navy really wanted, did more for political reasons and a whole bunch of other reasons at, at the cost of submarines, for example, or torpedoes or anything else. So ideally, we should be waking up. It's not abundantly clear we do because each of the services has their own sort of priorities. More specifically, you know, there is concern about how the economic downturn is going to affect how European militaries spend. This economic downturn is a global downturn. The yen took a pounding, uh, has been taking a pounding. Uh, I think it's down to 150 uh, to the dollar. That's the lowest it's been in quite some time. What are the Asian implications for the outlook for defense spending uh, at a time when a lot of nations are looking to improve their capabilities across across the the region? 
Well, I don't want to add to the uh, economic doom of uh, recession next year, but this does look like a global phenomenon and um, it will affect all of us. We've been through these rounds before in the 90s and the global financial crisis. China felt like it was rebounding very strongly from the global financial crisis of 2008 um, relative to the world, and it really boosted their confidence. Right now, it's not clear that they're going to benefit as much uh, if this is a global downturn. And if that's the case, then it's really hard to read uh, what that means other than the world uh, is growing less and uh, pain is uh, being spread more uh, distributed throughout the world. Um, quality of life is going down. And, and um you know who knows what the implications are of that uh, in general, but I think I think China's uh, economy uh, is the key still here, and I think you know Japan's economy is the key, and and so on. The, the, our allies are very interested in the economy, and the United States needs to be very keen about trying to fight off a recession, and that's where I think the Biden administration is under most uh, sort of uh, vulnerability. It's it's over the the, the decline of uh, the quality of life right now. So we all are facing economic downturn. I don't think that necessarily precipitates military action. Um, a war would be very costly for, for China. I'm saying all these things with, you know, in brackets around them, because of course, China has the option to get even harder line and start to, you know, in, impose a blockade around Taiwan if they want to, if they need to. I just don't see us giving them the reason to do that at the moment. Um, and I don't think the Taiwan Policy Act uh, that's pending uh, is, is, a, is a red line either for them especially as the adjustments are being made. Um, and the fact that you've got uh, Republicans coming in, in in a new Congress, possibly cutting back aid on Ukraine in, in light of recession, maybe that's more likely. Uh, at the same time, you know, I think China's more interested to see how weak we're going to get uh, as an alliance, as, as a national power, uh, rather than them think that they're going to get a lot stronger and better quickly. They're really hurting uh, economically. I just, you know, the semiconductor crackdown, uh, is a case in point where they know now they're going to have trouble competing at the high end of semiconductors, which are vital for every electronic system they have in combat. Um, and I, you know, that, and you can't just grab Taiwan and get the sophisticated semiconductors because you're more likely to destroy the capacity for production than you are to take it over. Um, uh, our, our time is uh, running short. Uh, and uh, Dov, I want to get your thoughts uh, on Israel. Uh, Syria, Iran, Russia pulling out of Syria and all of that in, in, a, in a second. But I have to ask you, Patrick, about the um, North Korean nuclear test. What do we know, right? CSIS saying that it's imminent based on commercially available satellite information. Um, that's going to be their seventh test, right? Where what, what's what's your sense on on what's come what's coming and how the world has to react to it? Right. I mean, do we finally just acknowledge them as a nuclear power and, you know, play by fight club rules at that point? Well, since the spring of this year, it's been obvious that North Korea had rebuilt uh, the nuclear test facility and that they were going to be ready for a nuclear test. The, the flurry of missile tests this year, especially even the last couple of months, suggests that they're preparing for this nuclear test within the next two or three weeks. Um, so it could come any day. Uh, there may be not just a seventh test, but an eighth or ninth, partly because they seem to be wanting to experiment with low-yield nuclear uh, warheads um, so they can create this tactical nuclear capability they've been talking about, especially since uh, January of last year in the Eighth Party Congress uh, for, for North Korea. Um, you know, no, the answer is not to abandon the long-term goal of denuclearization. I disagree with experts like Jeffrey Lewis and others who think we should just abandon that. Um, but I do think that should not be our goal right now. Our goal should be beefing up U.S. 
South Korean Japan forces. Um, and there are a lot of good signs of going on right now in terms of, you know, looking at the three axis deterrence that President Yoon wants in terms of missile defense, now looking for low altitude defenses, wanting to pursue ahead with the kill chain preemptive strike, including with an undersea component, um, and adding this Korea massive uh, punishment and retaliation uh, operational plan and capacity, where right now the South Koreans are interestingly talking about an unmanned command by 2040. And that what they mean is that almost half of the ROK armed forces, the South Korean armed forces, are going to be unmanned assets, they project. Um, and so they're going to have a, a manned command <laughs> for uh, for these unmanned forces. And I think that's an interesting sign. So in other words, the U.S. needs to improve with South Korea our offensive and defensive capabilities. We need to be more integrated with Japan. I was I welcome the, the three chairmen of, uh, of the United States, Japan, in Korea meeting in Seoul this week to talk about right. that. Um, that was a good sign. By the way, Japan and Australia just signed a new intelligence upgrade, uh, which will provide uh, give Japan more of an AUKUS-like role and in uh, into the technology cooperation. Um, the Quad countries are talking about uh, a possible standing naval force. There are a lot of good things happening to re reinforce deterrence. We don't have to hyperventilate about North Korea's capabilities, but they are a problem. They will continue to grow. I think Kim Jong-un is convinced that this is the period for him to grow these forces because he doesn't see a, a deal in the offing that he likes with either Seoul or Washington. Gov, we've got a couple of more, a uh, couple of minutes left, but it's a very important question, uh, given that Russia's uh, unraveling is having global implications, right? As Phil Carter explained yesterday, you know, when, when I asked him about what was bad strategy and he said what Vladimir Putin has done because he's draining units from all across Russia. He's withdrawing troops from uh, Syria. Uh, obviously, uh, Israel has a lot of interests uh, in the fight against uh, ISIS uh, as well as, you know, schwacking Syria uh, as well. So less Russians down there makes it easier for Israel to execute. At the same time, Iran is cracking down at home, uh, including increasingly striking uh, Kurds uh, in Iraq, right? So this is potentially what nightmares are, are made out of. What does all of this mean and how does Washington need to be thinking about it? Well, to begin with, uh, the Russians aren't completely out of Syria and it's very important to remember they've got a uh, naval base in Tartus, they've got an air base that they never had uh, before the Syrian civil war began. Um, they're not completely out. Uh, but they have moved troops out. And the other thing is that the general who really brutalized Syria and won back whatever Assad got back in Syria, General Surovikin, uh, Sergei Surovikin, he's called General Armageddon for a reason. He is now in charge of all operations in Ukraine. He's the boss. And if you look at the, uh, the attacks that have taken place over the last couple of weeks, um, you can point to that general, and there's going to be more of that. Uh, by the way, I don't think the Ukrainians are going to bend any more than the British bent when uh, the V2 attacked them. Uh, they're not going to give in, but it's going to get even more brutal. For the Israelis, the challenge is twofold. One, there are still Russians there, but there are fewer of them, which means the Iranians, who, as you rightly point out, are already causing terrible trouble in Iraq and going after the Kurds, uh, which creates a problem in Kurdistan, by the way, uh, but also are going to strengthen their hand in Syria, which is a problem for Israel. So they've got to continue to coordinate with the Russians. They want the Russians to stay. At the same time, they also want Jews to continue to come out of Russia, which they're doing. 
Uh, and of the Russians could cut that off just as the Soviets did for many years during the Cold War. And the Israelis certainly don't want that. Uh, on the other hand, there is pressure even within the Israeli government. Uh, a minister named Nachman Shai said it's time to help the Ukrainians out. The Israelis are already helping the Ukrainians with anti-drone capabilities. But there are people in Israel who say, no, we really need to do more for moral reasons. But countries, even the United States, do not necessarily do things for moral reasons. And from the Israeli perspective, they've got to maintain a balancing act with Russia that, for instance, uh, Turkey, which does as well, but Turkey provides uh, drones that kill Russians. Israel's in a different place. It's, it's much more vulnerable to what Russia might do. And so they're agonizing, but they're going to continue to help Ukraine perhaps defend itself, but not with offensive weapons. And uh, what about the outlook uh, in uh, Iran? Again, one of these things where people were buoyant, the regime is going to fall, the regime has dithered. But uh, as you pointed out at the very beginning of this crisis, uh, Dove, uh, right, the, the IRGC, um, you know, has no problem having uh, whether it's foreign or Iranian blood on its hands, right? And have right. cracked down remarkably brutally. Yeah, very, very much like General Armageddon. Um, but going after the Kurds and uh, going after the Baluch, going after the minorities, remember, per, per, Iran is the Persian Empire, uh, right. and an empire includes lots of minorities. If they continue to do that, plus the women, plus support from, uh, from men, uh, then things could change, but it's going to take time. And the key is going to be the army. If the army is ready to turn its guns on the IRGC, you're going to have a bloody civil war, but that could change the nature of the government. If the army decides that it doesn't want to take on the IRGC, which has just as many guns in many ways, then you're going to see continued uh, unrest, but the Ayatollahs will stay on top. Um, Patrick, any um, sort of uh, Asia implications there that you see, given that the Chinese uh, also are playing a clever game with the Iranians, right? I mean, we always think about the Iranians in terms of what they're doing with the, with the Russians, uh, as opposed to thinking about what the Iranians are actually doing with the North Koreans as well as the Chinese, right? How do folks need to bear, how to think about this axis uh, as well? Well, not to succumb to the uh, the Chinese characterization that we're always thinking of zero-sum thinking, but the fact that you have four malign revisionist powers in Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran moving in the same direction is never a good sign for democracies and for the United States and our allies and partners. Um, so um, this is not a good direction. Um, and I do expect North Koreans to show up on the battlefield like the Iranians. So I, I really think we need to find ways to break the seams of that uh, axis of evil as well, um, it, without maybe necessarily using that phrase that I just used. Um, and I, I do think, um, uh, you know, there are real limits to it and, and uh, the internal um, sort of social upheaval inside Iran uh, may be an indication of the restraints there, just as uh, Vladimir Putin, despite all of his power, um, had to deal with the fact that young men were disappearing from the streets of Moscow. I mean, there was a, right. mobilization, it turns out, was not a popular uh, policy, even for a tyrant. So you have to make sure we press the case on these issues. Um, Xi Jinping has um, as many internal problems, uh, many more, actually, but we don't see them very often because they're very good at covering them up. 
And just before we go, we have a very, very brief uh, amount of time for this. The Washington Post has uh, done a series of stories, uh, both uh, looking at how retired uh, American general officers uh, are uh, um, advising governments uh, abroad, whether it's uh, the Saudis uh, in the Middle East or uh, Australia on the submarine program. Uh, Patrick, uh, you put your hand up and said you wanted to sort of briefly contribute to that and Dove give you an opportunity to answer uh, as as well. I mean, for, for many, this is a highly regulated trade and they play a very important role, uh, a back channel role. Um, and indeed, ultimately, all we care about is the capability of our allies and partners improving, um, which has been palpable in the sense of improving the capabilities of our allies and partners. Uh, Patrick, really quickly, uh, your sense, and then Dove, if you want to weigh in as well. Well, Vago, the Craig Whitlock managed to get through the Freedom of Information Act uh, all of this material at one time, and I don't think we're able to unpack it uh, as quickly as he was able to kind of package all of these stories, and I, it conflated a lot of different issues for me. Um, it's good in general to have transparency about what military officers once out of uniform can still do or not do or how they go about getting permission to do it. That's a fair game to discuss and debate. But for instance, when it came to a story on admirals helping the Australians for submarine technology, I'm thinking, well, I hope so. I mean, I, I hope we're, I hope we're mode, you know, we're using the talent of our best military officers, even out of uniform to advise our allies and partners. Um, and there was an, even a quote in the article by a, a very good uh, analyst, but a, but a bit of a curmudgeon uh, in Canberra um, on uh, American admirals were somehow swaying Australian submarine decisions in a way that was bad for Australia. And I'm thinking, are you kidding? I mean, the Australians are pretty bloody minded. They make up their own mind. Um, advisory boards don't make those decisions. They just provide advice. So, uh, you know, I just would be very cautious about reading the other articles in this series and uh, saying, you know, much of this was good. Much of this was reinforcing policy and, and definitely in the national interest. Um, but sure, give us transparency. Let's review the rules. Let's make sure people got permission to do what they were doing. Um, let's make it more uh, accountable. And I, I'm all for that. But there was so much thrown out there at one time. Uh, it's going to take uh, months to kind of really, I think, uh, unpack what's what's important here and what's not. Um, and I should point out, right, I mean, the Collins class submarine was in deep trouble if it wasn't for uh, the commander of the submarine force Pacific, Big Al Konetsny, uh, weighing in and really helping put that program uh, back back on the tracks and, and knowing some of the uh, flag officers involved. It, it is, you know, how do we make how do we make this a succeed a, a success? Uh, from the standpoint of what the partnership is uh, supposed to deliver. Uh, Dove, do you want to weigh in at all yeah, briefly I'm, before we go? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with Patrick entirely. Uh, and for instance, it's one thing when you're a Michael Flynn working with Russia. It's quite another thing, as Patrick points out, if you're admirals working on uh, with Australia on making AUKUS the best it can be. Uh, the fact of the matter is we provide training to a whole lot of countries. And if we can provide that training not only with our uniformed personnel, but with people with tons of experience. And I know most of those people whose pictures are in the post. These are honorable men. Um, up to now, I think they're all men, if I'm not mistaken. They're honorable men. Uh, they served their country in the past. And in a way, they're serving their country today. Uh, and so, yes, we have to be very careful about how we approach this subject. I think ultimately the transparency uh, is good. You want good journalism to illustrate problems. On the other hand, I think that this is a very regulated business. So when everybody, you know, as Dove, uh, you know, and as Patrick, you know, um, you know, there are very, very strict rules that tend to govern uh, 
um, what folks can do and, and what the government itself needs to be done uh, in, in a back channel or in a quiet way or in the delivery of expertise that some of these countries may not have. Anyway, guys, thanks very much. Uh, honor and pleasure as always having you on the program. Hope you guys have a great uh, day, a great weekend, uh, and a great week. Look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot.